Welcome back to the Rooster Crows podcast for the week of January 25th, 2021. My name is Judy Pressman. This week's podcast is about an old movie that gave birth to a term that we hear every day now, gaslighting. The movie is Gaslight, made in 1944, starring Ingrid Bergman. She won the Best Actress Award for her performance as Paula, a woman who is psychologically abused by her husband. The film's depiction of this kind of emotional manipulation has seen a new lease on life as people have used the same approach on the internet and in politics. How much are we as a civilization still being gaslighted today? That's what Reverend Stephen Milton and Joyce Taylor discuss in today's podcast. We'll also hear one of the songs from the film, The Last Rose of Summer, performed by William and Polly. Today we're talking about the 1944 film Gaslight, as well as Gaslighting. And Joyce, what, what did you think of the movie? I thought it was a fascinating movie. I, I had no idea before um, we started getting into this that that was the origin of the term gaslighting. Yeah, it's pretty bizarre, right? Like, you know, so many films from that era, you know, with the exception of maybe you know, Casablanca and a couple others, just sort of sink beneath the waves and are forgotten forever. But this one's had a really lasting legacy. Absolutely. And, and you start to see you know, the origins of that lasting legacy when you actually go back and look at the movie. Yeah, so for those of you who, you know, aren't up on your 1944 movies, um, this one won the best picture. No, actually, it didn't win the best picture. It was up for it, but it won um, the Best Actress Award for Ingrid Bergman's performance of uh, Paula, who is a young woman who uh, has been living in London with her aunt, who gets who's a famous opera singer, who one night when Paula's a teenager, and Paula's a, an orphan, um, one night when uh, Paula's in the house, uh, somebody breaks in and kills her aunt, and uh, she comes across her aunt's dead body, who's of course traumatized, and is whisked off by her family to, uh, like by her extended family, to Italy, where she ends up uh, staying for the next 10 years. And in Italy, she meets somebody um, who is her piano accompanist. At least that's who he seems to be. Because uh, she's actually studying to become an opera singer like her aunt, and she actually bears a very strong resemblance to, physically to her aunt. And so um, she falls in love with her accompanist, uh, who is a big distraction from her singing, uh, which is pointed out to her by her singing coach. And so she ends up um, going away uh, to think about things, but her accompanist shows up and they're uh, immediate, almost immediately after married. And uh, he encourages her to go back to London to live in the house where she lived with her aunt and where her aunt was murdered. And she's rather reluctant to do that, but agrees because this is what he's always wanted. And uh, so when they get back to London, he starts manipulating her and telling her things that aren't true and 
confusing her with respect to what's real and what's not. Uh, yeah, he really messes with her mind, doesn't he? Like, absolutely. He's just, <laughs> he does these weird things like he gives her a brooch and says that it belonged to, I guess, to his mother and he wants her to have it because it's really special. And so she puts it in her purse and she goes out. Unknown to her, though, he steals the brooch. And then when she comes back, he says, oh, can you show me the brooch? And it, he's, he's played by Charles Boyer, very, very debonair, sort of European dude. Yeah. And, and older than her, too. Like he's, he seems to be in his early 40s, and she's maybe 22 or 23. And um, so he asks for the brooch, and she looks in her purse, and she doesn't have it. And he says, oh, did you lose it? You know, and yeah. he, he makes her start to doubt her own mind because she could have sworn she put it into her purse. And, of course, she did, but she doesn't realize that he's messing with her. Absolutely. And he says, oh, but you're, you're always losing things. And she's like, uh, no, I'm not. And it's like, yes, you are. Yes, you are. You know, telling her these things, which initially her reaction is, no, that's wrong. But then he keeps harping on her and then playing these tricks to reinforce his statement uh, that she thinks initially is false. Yeah. So uh, over time, and and he and he sort of gets the rest, some of the staff to do it with him, like you know, some of the servants in the house to do it with him. So she really starts to wonder if she's losing her mind, and it's not helped by the fact that um, every night uh, he basically finds an excuse to make her go to bed early, and um, he leaves the house kind of mysteriously, and it turns out that he's going into the attic above because when they first moved in, he demanded that all of her aunt's effects be put up into the attic. And that seemed like, you know, sort of just trying to go for a clean slate, but that's not what it's about at all. He, he goes up into the attic from a sort of back, uh, an entrance in the back of the house up at the top. He goes into the attic every night to search through her things because he's looking for something. It turns out he's looking for the jewels that he wanted to steal the night that he killed the ant. Um, and poor Paula down below can hear the footsteps above and she can see the gas lights flickering, um, which is a signal that someone's turned on the gas lights up above, but the staff say they don't hear anything. Yeah, well, I mean, you've got the cook who's deaf and then you've got the maid who's busy flirting with Charles Boyer's character. So, yeah, yeah n they're not going to be of any help. And... Uh, you know, every time she asks them if they turned on a light, you know, which would explain the gas go gas lights going down, they say no, of course not, because it isn't yeah, them. So, <laughs> it's it's yeah, exactly. So, so and she and he keeps humiliating her, making sure that she becomes more and more uh, convinced that she can't trust her mind, and he's even thinking about maybe sending her to an asylum. And the only thing that brings this terrible, terrible charade to a halt is that um, an agent from Scotland Yard, played by Joseph Cotton, an American, weirdly, um, figures out that something weird's going on and maybe uh, the jewels were the reason for the murder originally. And he manages to insinuate his way into the house. And one night he... he confronts Paula and he says, I don't think you're going crazy. I think something else is going on here. And he has a confrontation with Charles Boyer's character and they have a big fight and stuff. And um, it's revealed that he's been looking for these jewels all along and he killed the ant. Um, and Paula's finally able to go, I haven't been going crazy all this time. Um, 
So it's, it's, it's the film, if you want to see it, folks, it's on YouTube. You can rent it, and it actually holds up really well. I mean, it's kind of melodramatic, but it's uh, in terms of the psychological dynamics, unfortunately, not that much has changed, really. Yeah, that's very true. Um, and, uh, and it's Paula's desire to maintain the relationship that is really sucking her into this circumstance, which seems to be you know, something that you'd still see today. Yeah, because I mean, Paula is, you know, she's lost her parents when she was young. She loses her aunt when she's like 16. So she's, you know, inherently vulnerable. You know, of course, she would like to have a stable family life. And this debonair, dashing older man shows up and sweeps her off her feet. She thinks, wow, I've hit the jackpot. This is exactly what I need. Finally, some stability. Finally, some some security. So that's what she's looking for. But that's not what he's after. Exactly. Uh, she is an, a means to an end for him. Yeah. And so what happens, interestingly, what happens is the, so the film, you know, it's a hit briefly, but back then in the 40s and for a long time afterwards, you know, films would be in the theaters for two or three weeks um, and then they'd move on and like then new movies would come and take their place. And then there was no other way to see them. Like, you know, it, it, there wasn't television in the 40s. So if a movie was a big hit, it would just kind of disappear. And it wasn't until the age of television, especially like Turner's classic movies and stuff, that some of these old movies started to resurface. So this movie could have just sort of been completely forgotten, except that um, psychoanalysts uh, found it really interesting as a portrait for a particular type of interpersonal relationship, which is, which is abusive, where one person, usually a man, um, takes advantage of his spouse by not just telling her lies, but telling her lies which are designed to make her doubt herself. And the psychoanalysts adopted the term gaslighting for that form of manipulation. Yeah, it gives the abuser so much control over the victim in such an insidious manner um, and it's not something that is you know visible from the outside necessarily that's right and it's supposed to be secret right oh absolutely like, because i mean part of the pro part of the whole process is shaming the victim into thinking that she's going crazy and particularly you know, 40 or 50 years ago, that was extremely shameful. Um, that meant that you, you know, there was something inherently wrong with you. And it was not, you know, mental illness was something you hushed up. Right. And this was at a time when women were considered the weaker sex, right? Like that was just the standard belief that women were just sort of intellectually inferior to men. So for a woman to be told by her husband, oh, you should trust me, you know, um, that, that was actually part of what normal was, right? Like, um, I know that voting studies say from the 40s and 50s, women generally voted for whoever their husband said they should vote for, you know, because it was just sort of believed that the man was going to take the lead in the relationship and particularly with respect to anything that happened outside the house. So 
this sort of manipulation fell into the kind of cultural standard of doubt of women's perspectives. So there was no reason for them to believe anybody outside the house would believe them if they said, I think my husband's manipulating me. They would expect him to be the one who was the most trustworthy in the household. Yes. And, you know, women were also the hysterical sex and they would, you right. know, and, and anybody, uh, any woman who came you know, was starting to allege that her husband was doing these preposterous things. I mean, to most people, they would seem preposterous. Uh, well, you're just being hysterical. And, you know, maybe you need, you know, maybe you need a Valium, you know, calm down here, darling. You know, that sort of thing. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, and of course, the options for getting away from your husband were also limited. You know, the I'm, I think the first women's shelters, as we would understand them, didn't open, I think, in Britain, at least until the early 1970s. Like, you know, it's not like there were too many places to go, particularly if you didn't have family to run to. Yes, absolutely. And uh, particularly as well, if there was not uh, sufficient income within the family to support two households. Uh, right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, because the man was probably the only one working and um, alimony was really expensive. And of course, the husband wouldn't want to give a divorce, right? I mean, divorces yeah. had to be procured. You couldn't just walk out and say that's it, um, particularly if you wanted alimony. So yeah, a really, really tricky situation. And, and if people are thinking, well, okay, well, thank goodness we're over that now. Um, that's it's just not the case. Uh, when I was doing research for the sermon on this film, I came across this bizarre thing, which I'd never heard about, called digital gaslighting. And this is really, you know, uh, up to the moment um, in that, you know, we're all familiar now, thanks to the pandemic, with, you know, people having those Amazon doorbells, right? Those doorbells which um, have a camera built into them so they can see onto your front porch so that you know if a, if a parcel's being dropped off or if someone's ripping off your parcel. Right. And that's just, one of, that's just one of many, you know, sort of smart appliances which are in houses now, right? There's, oh, there's, there's all kinds of, of them. You can, you can turn on your lights and turn off your lights from you know, wherever you are, oh, you know, I think I may have forgotten to turn the heat down as you're heading out, you know, to on vacation. So you can use your smartphone, you know, oh, I've, you know, you've seen the advertisements for the cars where you can, oh, yes, you know, I'm already past security at the airport. I better make sure I locked the car that's sitting in the parking lot so I can do it on my smartphone. Yes. And all these things sound fantastic, right? Who wouldn't want to have a remote control house? Absolutely. Except if, except if you have an abusive husband. Well, right? yes. <laughs> Particularly <laughs> if that allows you to control the heat in the house. Is it on? Is it off? You know, control the lights. You know, do the lights go on at three o'clock in the morning? Or the, does the TV suddenly start blaring? Um, yeah, it can be very um, frightening. And yeah. And I gather that's that's what men have been doing. You know, um, there are, it's, I guess, uh, from my, what I read around 2017, law enforcement agencies and shelters started to report that women were saying, I had to leave the house because he was trying to drive me crazy by doing just what you're saying, Joyce, turning on lights, um, you know, uh, making doorbells ring and nobody's there, uh, having the music suddenly come on, blaring, and there's nobody else in the house. You know, I thought I was losing my mind. 
And so, yeah, like people are using remote control tech to digitally gaslight their spouses. Yeah, which is a horrible phenomenon. Yeah, and and not something which the tech industry, you know, took into account, right? Um, when they're putting together what should have been like, you know, the 21st century home, right? You can do everything remotely. Well, yeah, it all depends on how much you trust your spouse for that to work. Um, and what's interesting about gaslighting is that it's different than just lying to somebody. It's lying with the purpose to get control over them and to undermine their sanity. Um, and that's, that has become particularly uh, interesting. And one of the reasons that the term has become more uh, in, in common usage is because it's not just happening within households, but it's also happening to nations at, uh, at, at large, right? Like entire nations are being gaslighted now by politicians, uh, usually of a right-wing strike, but there's no reason it would have to be just on the right wing. Yeah, I mean, whole societies are being gaslit. Um, democracies are being gaslit by totalitarian um, states and their uh, government-funded agencies through social media. Yeah, yeah. And of course, we've just seen the biggest gaslighter of them all of the modern age just leave the White House. Um, uh, Trump was a master at gaslighting people because not only would he lie about um, what he was saying on any given day, but then he denied that he was lying. Yes, and then he would lie about, no, I never said that, when you have the tape that says, shows <laughs> yeah. him saying that. I mean, it's, it's absolutely infuriating, I'm sure, from the press's perspective, from the legitimate press's perspective, to say, how can you say that this is a lie because we have you here on tape. This is you saying that you, what you, you're now saying you didn't say, you know? Um, and, and how can you possibly do this? And then he goes, he, he just ignores that and goes on saying, you're just publishing fake news. And it has a devastating effect on the population, particularly those who aren't in favor of the current uh, or, or what existed prior to, to Trump's election, that, that current, you know, political system, political hierarchy, the, you know, the, the part of the population. The swamp that he wanted to drain. Well, yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, uh, the, the close relationships within the existing political structure within the United States that have left a large portion of the population feeling disaffected and excluded. And he was going to be their savior because he was an outsider who was, yes, gonna go in and drain the swamp and put in, you know, make, make America great again. Um, and so they wanted to believe that he could do this because there was nobody else that they could see who they might be able to believe in, who would change things um, and make, you know, this democracy more democratic for, from their perspective. Yeah, and in that way, the American population, or at least the ones who voted for Trump in 2016, were very much like Paula, right? Yes. They felt like they'd been orphaned by the system. 
you know, no one was taking care of them. Uh, if they ever had champions in the government, they were long gone. Um, so they needed a champion. And Trump came along saying all the right things, just like Charles Boyer did in the movie. Um, and he seduced them, basically, right? Claiming that he was going to, you know, uh, drain the swamp and make things better for the working class and um, take them into, you know, making America great again. Um, but what happened in practice was... I mean, we can debate how much good he did for the working class of the United States, but what's clear is tactically what he did was that he, he used lies and falsehoods to undermine his followers' confidence in the outside world, in this case, the mainstream media, so that they would become totally dependent on himself and his allies for providing what their, his view of what reality was. And that's the gaslighting part, right? Don't believe them, only believe me. Yes, because I am the only source of truth in this crazy mixed up world. Yeah, and the fact that he created the confusion um, uh, that he was trying to dispel <laughs> is, you know, in a, in a way brilliant. I, I don't admire why he was trying to do it, but tactically it was, you know, very effective. Um, but it's interesting, right, because this week... Um, or I guess last week, just uh, shortly after the insurrection in Washington, Twitter cut him off, and that just changed everything. Oh, yeah, between him being cut off from Twitter, uh, cut off from Facebook, uh, Parler was down until they agreed um, to Amazon's requirements to being able to be hosted again. Uh, the law enforcement agencies which really hadn't, you know, gotten into the issues um, that have that caused that attempt attempted insurrection have now really come out and uh, hammered down on, uh, you know, tracking down who was involved, looking into uh, starting at least hopefully to look into their own ranks as to mm -hmm. where um, this far-right conspiracy um, theorists uh, reside um, and also, you know, arresting the leader of the Proud Boys uh, down in Florida, yeah. apparently. And, you know, uh, causing uh, QAnon to uh, reportedly uh, be in disarray. So it, it's quite interesting how it's all starting to unravel now that the continual stream of lies has been to a large extent cut off. Yeah, and I think that it's funny, right? It was the fact that he could lie every day that created the conditions for the confusion and the need to have somebody emerge out of all that chaos to be reliable. And, you know, he emerged uh, as the self-presented champion. But as soon as he couldn't lie every day, as soon as the papers weren't in a tizzy every single day reporting whatever falsehood he was peddling that day, it, it's like the air started to clear and people went, oh, look, a fact. Yes. <laughs> you know, and uh, yesterday at the very first press conference for the Biden administration, uh, the press secretary was saying, yeah, we're going to be here to tell the truth. We're not always going to agree. Um, we'll probably disagree a lot, but you know we're at least going to try and present you with truth. And the reporters are like, "What, really? We're that's going to work again? Fantastic!" Um, 
and you know, obviously it's still politics. And, oh yeah. You know, lying is part of politics, but uh, that's not going to change overnight or if ever. But um, just the fact that the, I guess the barrage of lies, there's something about having a daily lie for everybody to be in a tizwas about. Um, once that stops, then it becomes much easier to look at the latest lie and go, oh, eh, maybe not. Or, or, or you know, it, it sort of, uh, sudden, it's like a souffle. You open the oven at the wrong time, the whole thing falls down at once. Um, and it's not that Trump's followers have disappeared or even that they've suddenly seen the light, as it were, and agree with the other side. But um, I think as a society, things have sort of calmed down a little bit. And it'll be interesting to see. I, I can't believe that Trump's followers will simply disperse quietly because Trump's, you know, playing golf at Mar-a-Logo and doesn't have a Twitter account. I mean, there's no way this thing has gone away that easily. It'll also be very interesting to see the extent to which Biden can, like, uh, Cotton's character in the movie Gaslight sort of shine, you know, the light um, and, and reveal the truth to those who have been gaslit. Yeah, and that's that's the tricky part, right? Like this all happened because uh, the white working class, at least, was being ignored and they felt aggrieved for that. And, you know, for all sorts of good reasons, there's there income has stagnated over the last 30 years. I mean, there's a lot, and you know, even the death rate has gone up among white middle-aged people because of the opioid crisis. And that's not true for any other group in the United States. So there are very, very legitimate grievances. Um, and those can't be swept aside. You know, those things have to be dealt with. And Biden's promising unity and stuff, but unity comes at the price of really, really listening to people who you don't agree with and being able to sit around a table and talk about it. And I think that, you know, that work can't be achieved at the high political level. You know, there's there this isn't gonna be solved by Mitch McConnell and, and Joe Biden sitting down and having a good frank talk. This is really only gonna be solved if people around kitchen tables um, can start talking about what they really think. And that's that's hard work, you know, and unfortunately we don't really have too many institutions left where people who thoroughly disagree with each other can get together and talk in a civil way. You're not supposed to talk about these things at work. Um, and a lot of the sort of um, uh, organizations like Lions Clubs and Rotary Clubs and stuff where, you know, people of different political backgrounds could get together and get to know each other don't exist very much. Any, I mean, they still exist, but they don't have as many members as they used to. A lot of civil society has kind of collapsed. Um, churches are one place where People of different political stripes can get together. But, of course, our attendance has dropped off madly, too. I think only something like slightly less than 13% of Canadians go to church regularly. So, you know, although I'm a firm believer that minorities, you know, who are dedicated can really make a difference, um, I think we, we face a real, a real problem here. And I think the um, other problem that we have is that the white middle class you know, or lower middle class are not the only disaffected group in society. I mm -hmm. mean, oh, for sure. uh, there are also, of course, legitimate grievances, which we've heard about over the last, you know, six to eight months uh, from, you know, those people of color, um, those, you know, particularly in the black, indigenous, um, and uh, persons of color, you know, BIPOC, uh, 
segment of society who have been systematically discriminated against, uh, you know, in the past intentionally, now I think less intentionally, but still systemically uh, discriminated against, uh, who also, who are now, I think, you know, particularly as we've seen in Georgia, have now, you know, said basically enough is enough. Um, we are now going to exercise our political power either by going into the streets and making our views known that way through uh, protest or by getting out and voting. And so yeah. it's these trying to reconcile these two legitimate, uh, very different groups uh, and bring that culture together. I mean, as one, somebody said to me many years ago, culture eats policy for breakfast. It yeah, is yeah. very, very difficult to legislate or put in policies, you know, even in a workplace or, you know, let alone, you know, uh, through the political legislative system that defeats culture. Um, you know, yeah. cult, that's why reform in uh, paramilitary uh, and military uh, institutions is so difficult because the culture is so entrenched. And one of the things I've read is that uh, when people are recruited to some of these paramilitary groups and white supremacist groups, often they don't get recruited because they're already supremely racist. They often get recruited because they're disaffected and detached from the society around them. They're vulnerable, you know, very much like, you know, we hear about how um, when uh, the Taliban or ISIS goes looking for, you know, potential Western sympathizers who can come over and fight the fight in Syria and other places, they often look for people who are just really, really lonely and vulnerable, uh, very much like Paula, again, actually. Um, and I think that's, uh, that is both uh, a cause for hope and a cause for concern. One, a cause for concern because modern society is so good at isolating people from each other so that they can seek solace very much alone online and be exposed to extreme views which are detached from reality but which um, promise a degree of solidarity and community which people crave. Um, on the other hand, it means that you know if you can provide community for people, then you can short circuit at least the recruiting arm of this. Um, and it's really a soft power thing. It's really about communities being able to reach out to people when they're feeling lonely and vulnerable and giving them a place where they can feel like they belong. Um, and I, that's, that's hard work. It's not sexy work, um, but it's necessary work because ultimately people really, really need to be heard. And if they feel like they're heard, then they're less likely to adopt more extreme views uh, about others because they won't necessarily be living in just you know a, a um, you know a fishbowl or or um, just listening to other people who keep telling them a view of reality which they don't cross check with reality itself. Yeah, you get rid of the echo chamber. That's the word I was looking for. Yes, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Um, yeah, so basically we're all Paula now. <laughs> yes, and, and, and yeah, a, right. to a large extent, because of the pandemic, we're even more like Paula. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're even more isolated in our little houses and our little worldviews than we ever were before. 
Um, yeah, and you know, we have to name that. We have to say, listen, we are in a very vulnerable spot to being, you know, uh, charmed and seduced and misled uh, as long as we're disconnected from each other. So, I mean, that's one of the reasons why, you know, if, if you're of a spiritual bent, try and find a church uh, that can, you know, provide the good news to you as well as uh, some social support. And if you're not of a spiritual bent, try and find people to talk to, book clubs, um, you know, sports clubs, which I guess we can't go to right now as long as we're under pandemic conditions. But connection is key. Loneliness is toxic and dangerous, not just for you, but for everybody. And find people who don't necessarily agree with you. You know, they yeah. don't have to, you don't have to find people who are diametrically opposed to you, but find people who you can hash out ideas with and think about things from perhaps a slightly different perspective so that you're not stuck in an echo chamber. Yeah, and this is actually... Technologically, I know that we say that, you know, oh, the Internet's been a disaster because people get sucked into these like-minded groups. But the converse is true, you know, uh, especially now during the pandemic, I've found that there's all sorts of talks online which are being done instead of in-person gatherings, which are inherently open to everybody. Um, you know, I've gone to some Black Lives Matters ones, which have been just fabulous. And, you know, I'm not sure I would have felt comfortable showing up in person as a white guy to a Black Lives Matter meeting, um, but I can go now and it's fantastic. I really find it interesting. Um, it's a perspective that, you know, I'm not very familiar with, certainly not part of my cultural bubble, um, but I think really important to learn about. And the same is true for, you know, um, you know, more right wing perspectives. You know, there's it's never been easier to get information now or other people's perspectives in a passive way. You know, like I think talking to people is critical, um, but now is an easy time to sort of just sidle up to views which you don't agree with, but at least you can be exposed to so you can understand their point of view. Yeah, that's a really good idea. So now that we've solved the world's problems. Again. <laughs> again. Wow, this is so effective. Uh, why don't we uh, Why don't we end it there? But thank you very much, Joyce. It's been a fascinating conversation. It has been a terrific conversation. Thanks very much, Stephen. All right. Until the next time. In the film Gaslight, Paula's aunt has a theme song which appears several times in the film. It is based on an old Irish poem. Here to perform it are the Canadian folk duo, William and Polly. Thank you.
That was William and Polly performing The Last Rose of Summer, featured in the 1944 film Gaslight. That's it for today's podcast. The Rooster Crows is produced by Lawrence Park Community Church in Toronto, Canada. We're a progressive Christian church, and we stream our services live every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Please check us out at www.lawrenceparkchurch.ca. My name is Judy Pressman, and I am the program manager at the church. Our theme music is Simple Gifts, performed by our music director, Mark Toes. Thank you for listening. Please stay healthy and safe.